Have you been zombified by disease? Hopefully not Ebola. Uh, yeah, but or anything really. Maybe. Who? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, or the fear of disease. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, the fear of disease, like. Uh, although not as much as my mom would like. She always wants me to get my flu shot. And uh, then I don't, I just don't get it. <laughs> so. <laughs> so according to your mom, you're not zombified enough by your fear of disease. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, which I guess increases the chances that I will be actually zombified by disease. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. So. Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at Arizona State University. And we love brains. We love brains. We're not so keen on disease, yeah, maybe. Yeah, we could do without disease. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, but this episode is about disease, epidemics. That's right. Bats spreading disease. That's, yeah, and a lot of really interesting history about how disease spreads from one place to another. Yes. And so who are we talking to today? We are talking with David Quammen, who is a journalist, science writer, and he's kind of an adventurer. He's been like all over the place mm -hmm. studying disease and human-animal interactions. And he's got a really interesting perspective on not just the sort of negative side of transmission, uh -huh. but there's also a positive side of transmission that you can have organisms actually sort of sharing genes with each other. You can have bacteria sharing genes with each other. You can have organisms taking up genes from one another. Even our very existence as eukaryotic organisms is because of cooperation, or maybe not cooperation, we don't really know, but we basically took on what were previously bacterial cells free living, and they're what our mitochondria are now. It's a very heartwarming episode. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And we, we recorded this um, before the coronavirus outbreak. That's true. And, and so there's some things in this episode that I think are relevant to understanding that. But you also need to know that it was before coronavirus. That's why we're not talking about it at all. That's true. In this so, episode. So. Yeah. Well, let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, David Quammen. Sounds good. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how Welcome, David. Would you, uh, Thank you introduce yourself in your own words for I'm us? I'm David Quammen. I'm just in from Bozeman, Montana. I'm a science journalist and author of books mostly about biological sciences for the general public. Awesome. And as we just discovered as we were getting ready here, you, Dave, are also from Bozeman, but not recently. That's right. I was, I was born in Bozeman, and then, and then I moved here. So... Uh, the opposite of uh, 
Is it Sam McGee from Tennessee? Sam McGee was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the South to roam around the pole, God only knows. Yeah. I went the opposite way, see? So this is the first time in my life I've ever been cold. So oh. when, I'm, when I'm laid in the ground, I'll be the opposite. Yes. So. Well, that's what, that's, uh, see, Bozeman is a cold place. Nobody, you know, nobody would want to live there. It's uh, Here we are on... November 11th, I flew out on the 10th. We'd had snow on the ground for three or four weeks. It's a miserable, cold, frigid place. Mm. I was born I was born August 30th. My mom said it was snowing the day I was born. Oh there, you yep. there you go. There you go, listeners. Wow. August 30th, snowing in Bozeman. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, so, so David, well, first of all, we have Dave and David. So, so Dave my co-host, uh-huh. and then yes. <laughs> David, our guest, just so that we all are, are are on the same page. So, so David, how did you get into science journalism, and and in particular, you know, these questions about evolution and disease, and um, you know, things that are close to our zombie hearts? I drifted sideways into science journalism. I started my writing career as a fiction writer. I published a novel when I was fresh out of college. Back in 1970, 49 years ago, I published my first book. And then I paid my dues between my first book and my second, rather than the usual, which is pay your dues before your first book. So for 13 years, I didn't publish much of anything else. I was a bartender and a waiter and a fishing guide in Montana. (laughs) That sounds not so bad. (laughs) (laughs) The worst things. It was a good time. This was in the 70s. And um, I started reading nonfiction uh, more intently than I ever had, discovering that nonfiction can be imaginative and artful without cooking any of the facts, without inventing quotes or anything like that. Straight, careful, responsible, accurate nonfiction can also be artful. I learned that from reading McPhee and Stephen Jay Gould and Annie Dillard and Lauren Isley and J.B.S. Haldane and a number of other people. And then I said, hey, uh, yeah, that's the kind of writing I'd mm-hmm. like to do. So I reinvented myself as a magazine writer uh, focusing on the natural world. Mm-hmm. Figured out how to be a freelance magazine writer and then eventually started writing books about natural science as well. About mm-hmm. Darwin, about evolutionary biology, about island biogeography, and then eventually about about life science things that don't take place mostly outside, but some of them take place inside in laboratories, Mm -hmm. like molecular phylogenetics and uh, evolutionary oncology. Yeah. So so for you, it was sort of like this realization that science and reality doesn't have to be deathly boring. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Not only does it not have to be deathly boring, but you can... You can thrive as a writer and, and get great satisfaction creating artful nonfictions that present complicated scientific facts, theories, and ideas in a way that's narratively dramatic and satisfying. People want to read about people, so when people read about science, part of them really wants to read about human stories of doing science, of science as a process, of science as a human activity. And I figured that out fairly early, and that's what I've been doing since. I've been writing about natural science, but equally writing about natural scientists Mm. and writing about the history of science. 
especially the history of evolutionary, all the, all the branches of evolutionary biology. Because evolution, after all, is a historical discipline. If people are going to understand evolutionary biology, it seems to me logical that they should understand the history, to some extent, of evolutionary biology and yeah. of all these great discoveries. Well, and some of your work also is about human-animal interactions, which is something that I think people are very interested in, right? Both in its the positive sides of it and the potential yeah. risks. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of my work is about human-animal interactions. I mean, the book Spillover, published in 2012, is about zoonotic diseases, meaning um, the infectious agents that pass from non-human animals into humans and become human epidemics and pandemics. Ebola, SARS, HIV, and some other fascinating viruses in particular that most people haven't heard of, that dramatic stories of, uh, of um, lethal emerging viruses coming out of uh, non-human animal hosts and getting into humans. What? But but the, some of my earlier writing before that, too, was about animal-human interactions. I wrote a book about big predators, um, in particular, uh, the relationship relationships between rural people who live on the landscape and the big predators that we all want to see preserved. Tigers, lions, crocodiles, brown bears. Hmm. Uh, that's a book called Monster of God. Interesting. Um, cool. And what is the, give us the sort of brief rundown of the, the dynamic between the people and the animals. Well, I focused on, in particular, those big predators that are big enough, fierce enough, and solitary enough such that a single individual can and sometimes does kill and eat a human. Ooh. So what are loosely called man-eaters. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, really not a very good term because most of those big predators that occasionally kill a human do not make a living preying on humans. Sure. But they do it occasionally when they have broken teeth, they're desperate. Um, or when they're is it, natural. Is it because we're not that tasty to them? No, because we're dangerous and troublesome. Oh, okay. Right. So we are tasty. We're just a lot we're, of trouble. I think we're as tasty as the next mammal. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. But um, what happens is that if you have a population of big predators, tigers, lions, uh, they have their prey base. They're living on antelope or deer or whatever. They're the, the native herbivores. And if human population starts to grow, just even rural people, and... Um, and they have livestock, they have goats and sheep and cows, then those goats and sheep and cows are competing against the wild herbivores. Mm. And the people don't like the wild herbivores because they're competing for grass with their livestock. So they tend to kill the wild herbivores for meat or displace the wild herbivores. If you still have big predators there and their wild herbivores are gone, what are they going to do? They're going to eat the domestic herbivores that have replaced them. So they eat cows, sheep, goats. People want to protect their cows, sheep, and goats. Boom. Animal-human conflict. People against big predators. It's the most natural and inevitable thing in the world. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great summary of what is a really complicated situation, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. and the human side of it and the politics. And I focused in particular on four populations of big predators around the world and on the people, the rural people who live on the ground amid those big predators who pay the costs 
for those big predators. Mm. We all enjoy the benefit of knowing that the Siberian tiger is still alive in the Russian Far East, that the saltwater crocodile is still alive in northern Australia, that the Asiatic lion has survived in western India in the state of Gujarat, the Asiatic lion, not tiger, in India, and that brown bears, mm-hmm. which we call grizzlies in Montana, but here the, the, the brown bear uh, is a whole Arctic species, lives all the way around the north. I went to Romania and studied their brown bear population there. Each of those big predators shares the landscape with rural people who are mostly poor and disempowered and raising livestock on the landscape, and they are paying the costs of those big predators while the rest of us around the world enjoy the benefits of knowing that those big predators survive. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so maybe this is a, a great... Um, way to start talking about some of those, those smaller predators that come in at this intersection mm-hmm. with sort of human agriculture and wild populations. Um, could you tell us a little bit about like the, the Hendra virus? Mm. Hendra virus is the case that I described at the very beginning of the book Spillover. <clears throat> uh, 1994 in a suburb of uh, uh, in in a oh oh in a suburb of Brisbane, Australia, called Hendra, name of the suburb. It's a racing community. Lots of racehorses, thoroughbred racehorses in stables there. Lots of race tracks. It's a culture of racing. And in one stable, uh, all of a sudden in 1994, horses started dying, foaming at the mouth, convulsing, thrashing on the ground. Three men were there trying to save these horses, trying to clear their windpipes. Um, There was um, a stable hand, a veterinarian, and the owner of the stables, these three guys, and they worked with these horses. And nobody knew what was causing um, this terrible phenomenon, disease that was passing from one horse to another. But horses were dying. Something like 12 horses died in three or four days. And these guys were working to try and save them. And then these guys, two of the three, got sick. The stable hand went home feeling like he had a terrible, terrible flu. And the stable owner went into the hospital with severe respiratory problems and then organ failure. He died. The stable foreman recovered. The veterinarian is the one who told me the story years later. What they discovered was this was a new virus that was infecting these horses. And it was similar to measles. It was an ortho, orthomyxovirus, I think. Orthomyxovirus? I'm forgetting the, the family name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, related to, to measles. And, uh, but it was never seen by science before. And they named it after this suburb, Hendra. And then they tried to figure out where did this virus come from all over the bloody sudden hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and one fellow named Hume Field, who was a veterinarian, who was getting a PhD in ecology, decided to make that his project to find the natural host, the reservoir host of this virus. What animal was it living in before it got into the horses? Yeah. Can we maybe just take a minute to talk about this idea of a natural host or reservoir host, like what that means yeah. exactly? Yeah. So virus can only replicate inside living cells. Virus is not a cellular 
form of life. It's kind of halfway between life and non-life. It's sort of this weird mechanical thing, a virus. But to replicate, it must be inside a living human cell. Therefore, it must be inside some kind of an animal, plant, or some other creature. It could be inside of a bacterium, even. Um, but when you, when you talk about emerging viruses that infect humans, in each case, that virus seems to come out of nowhere. If it's a new virus, suddenly it's in humans. But it can't come out of nowhere. It has to come out of somewhere. Um, there's a section in my book, Spillover, titled Everything Comes from Somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the natural population or reservoir. So the reservoir host, host is, the, um, is the species of creature, and usually it's an animal, in which the virus lives chronically, permanently, inconspicuously, without causing disease in that particular mm -hmm. uh, species of creature. So it's a little, I don't know, for me, it's a little confusing to wrap my mind around, like it's the, you know, natural host, quote, for the virus, but then in that host, it doesn't even really manifest as an illness, right? It's like, it's almost like it's... Generally not, as far as yeah. we can tell. Yeah. It doesn't cause massive die-offs. Mm -hmm. um, it lives there inconspicuously and impermanently. That's its refuge. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has presumably evolved to some sort of an of an equilibrium, a standoff, a, an understanding with that species. So that it, it, um, it, and generally in the reservoir host, it exists at low levels, not concentrated virus, you know, not high viremia, meaning the blood is seething with viruses. It's just there. And then it drips out of that host or spills over, mm. hence my title, from mm -hmm. that host. And if it gets into another creature, a horse or a human, then in some cases it can cause fulminating disease, um, sickness, and death. Mm -hmm. And so this virus had spilled over from something, got into horses. Horses turned out to be hugely susceptible to this virus, so they were dying and they were producing a lot of, um, you know, discharge, foam, um, bloody snot, all mm -hmm. sorts of things, and that got on the arms of the guys. They're reaching down the throats of these horses, trying to clear their windpipe, exposing themselves. They didn't know that this was a new virus. And two out of the three got sick. One out of the three died. Mm. That's, and, that's Hendra. And then this relates to the idea of an amplifier, right? Yes. Um, the horses were considered amplifier hosts. But the, the, what, term, what is, oh, the yeah. term amplifier is kind of anthropocentric. I mean, if you're a horse, horses are not an amplifier Host horses are the victims of this virus. Yeah. Okay. If you're humans and you're getting it from horses, then you call them the amplifier host. So the amplifier host, that's the host where it goes from sort of not causing a lot of symptoms to causing a lot of symptoms? Is yes. that what? Yeah, yeah if it's yeah. not human, right? And just producing a lot more virus. It's, the virus is, is replicating more abundantly in the amplifier host. So, so you were saying, you were talking about the reservoir host. Are we reservoir hosts to viruses? Um. We probably are. Let's see. What would be an example? Um, there are probably, um, yeah, if you're a mountain gorilla uh -huh. and human tourists come and one of them is carrying measles, but that person, you know, mm. has been vaccinated against measles, but he somehow he's been exposed to measles and he still, you know, is carrying a little bit of measles virus and that person sneezes on you you're a mountain gorilla, and you die of measles, then the human was a reservoir host. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, 
Yeah, which I mean brings but, up the sort of interesting issue of like the different susceptibility yeah, of yeah. different mammals, right? And even what I said there is not mm-hmm. fully accurate because I mean a reservoir host is it's classically understood. It's an ecological term. It's not you know, it's got slightly fuzzy boundaries, uh, reservoir host, but generally it means that this is a species in which the virus is living constantly. Right, um, so it wouldn't necessarily be like measles because measles... Because measles circulates. Yeah. Measles does not... You know, yeah. yeah. Measles so either just, make, makes you sick pretty soon or it's gone. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, so, then, so then this student set out to find out... Yeah, so this, this fellow, Hume Field, field said, uh-huh. and so he started... Um, he started collecting and sampling all the creatures that lived around these stables. Um, rats, no sign of the virus. Lizards, no sign of the virus. You know, uh, uh, possums, uh, no sign of the virus. Um, and then he noticed that the first horse, this was a little mystery story, and the people who study emerging dese- diseases essentially are, you know, are disease detectives. So... He noticed the fact that the very first horse that got sick had not been in those stables. She was a mare who had been out in a, in a paddock, a field, because she was with foal. She was getting ready to give birth. She was out there. But she got very sick. And so he brought her into his stables. And then she died and she made all the others sick. Uh-huh. Her name was Drama Series, kind of a, an appropriate <laughs> name, because she generated a drama series. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Drama Series had been out in this paddock. This is subtropical Australia. It's sunny. It's hot. You know, it's like Tempe. Sure. It's, it's like Phoenix in the summer. Um, and there was one tree out in this field that threw some shade. And so this horse drama series would go under that tree and hang out in the shade. And this guy went back to that paddock um, and he looked at it and he saw this one tree. And then he saw bats flying in and out of that tree because it was a fig tree. So he caught some of these bats, these big Australian fruit bats. He sampled them. Bingo, he found the virus. Huh. So that was identified as the reservoir host. This mm. big fruit bat. I forget the species name of it. But, mm. um, so was the horse probably like eating the figs and they had the bat shit on them? Exactly. And made, made her probably. bat shit crazy? Oh, hypothetically, <laughs> yes. Exactly huh. that. Yeah. Uh, so that's the sort of disease detection that goes on wherever new diseases are emerging, especially mm-hmm. new viral diseases. Mm-hmm. Ebola. What's for, for years, I think this mystery now has been officially solved, but for years people you know, were terrified of Ebola, knew Ebola could be a terrible virus, could huh? kill 60-70% of the people that it infects. And these outbreaks would occur, including the big 2014 outbreak in West Africa, which was not an outbreak. It was, it was an epidemic. It was more than an outbreak. Um, uh, and people did not know what the reservoir host of Ebola was. People said, well, we think it's bats. Bats are the reservoir host in a lot of these cases. But there was no smoking gun. There was not the gold standard of proof that it was bats. The gold standard of proof is not that you take an animal and you sample it and you find antibodies in its blood against this virus, that might just indicate exposure. If you find live virus, if you can take a blood sample and you can grow live Ebola virus in the lab from the blood of that animal, then you have shown that that animal was a reservoir host. Yeah. Can we talk about this sort of finding the antibodies and what that means? Because I think that's like just a big picture issue with 
you know, detecting disease that that's that's interesting, right? That mm-hmm. like you don't actually have to find the live virus in order to know that this species is affected. Yes. Yeah. You if you find antibodies, then there are several different kinds of of tests where you can, you know, in the lab you can you can test to see if there are antibodies against this particular um, virus. Um, and that those would be there because one the of them is called West, system, Western blot, right? Right. The immune system detected that virus in that host, right? Yes. And then produced these antibodies to try right. to fight it off. And those will stay in the host those will stay pretty much indefinitely. Part so of the can, adaptive immune system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so it's kind of cool actually that yeah. you know we can take the way that the immune system is working and use that for clues about the direct you know the the path that a disease has taken yeah. through the yeah. web of it's life. sort of another kind of molecular fossil record. Mm-hmm. So so once we figure that out, what how does discovering what the reservoir host is? How does that help us? You know what I mean? Like if you discover the reservoir host of a terrible new virus is animal A, then uh, some people. Some people say, well, that's going to be bad to know because then people are going to say, okay, um, fruit-eating bat A uh, is the reservoir host of Hendra or Ebola. Therefore, what's the logical conclusion? Well, we've got to kill off, we've got to exterminate that animal. Uh-huh. No, wrong. <laughs> no. The logical conclusion is we've got to keep humans and animal A separate. Uh-huh. We've got to keep humans from hunting animal A for food, keep humans from killing 10 of these giant bats and carrying them into to market over their shoulder um, and then carrying the little daughter over the same shoulder when they walk back from the market. Right, okay. Uh, you got to do that sort of thing. Leave the bats alone. We need bats. Bats are wonderful creatures. They have huge uh, importance. They deliver lots of ecological services. The world doesn't have enough bats. We need all the bats we have, but keep humans and bats mm-hmm. from having contact in so far as possible. Yeah. So I think this, there's a whole interesting set of issues too about like why is it that bats are often such a problematic species for us, right, in terms why is of... It? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because if you if you make a, a rogues gallery list of new dangerous emerging viruses, SARS, MERS, Hendra, Nipah in Malaysia and Bangladesh, a Marburg virus in Central Africa and now Ebola, and a number of others, and you say, what are the reservoir hosts of these? A lot of them will turn out to be bats. And this is a question that scientists who work on this has grappled with. Why bats? Mm-hmm. And I asked those scientists, I went to them when I was researching spillover, why bats? There's a wonderful scientist in Fort Collins named Charlie Kalisher, uh, who has worked on these viruses. He's become a pal of mine. And, and uh, Charlie wrote a paper on the subject, Why Bats? Uh, and uh, looked at a number of different hypotheses and looked at the data that were available, not as much data as we wish, but a lot, and there are a couple of things that can be said. First of all, do bats seem to be disproportionately represented as reservoirs of dangerous viruses? Yes, at first blush, they do seem to be disproportionately represented. But then you remember, one in every five species of mammal on planet Earth is a bat. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Bats are extraordinarily diverse. There's something like, I think it's 1,200 species of bats, something like that, maybe 6,000 species of mammals. I may have those numbers wrong. This is just off the top of my head. And, you know, this book was published 
seven years ago. But I think it's about that. Bats are disproportionately represented in the diversity of mammals on Earth. Hmm. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that bats tend to live a long time. You know, mm. A little bat, size of a mouse, can live 20 years. A mouse is not going to live 20 years. So does that give the disease more time to... Yes, and bats live in, the, at least some of them, live in huge social aggregations. Mm. So, you know, I've walked into a, um, a cave with, um, with a, a research, a couple of researchers, and we've seen um, a, a, an aggregation of bats on a wall. It looked like somebody had put up like a big buffalo robe on the wall, but what it was was 60,000 bats. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> All huddled together, keeping one another warm. Their babies, their pups. That's like the under size of the undergrad population on this yeah. campus. Yeah. Oh, you're 60, right. 60,000, yeah. right? We're like, of, yeah. 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 So. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot that's of mammals huddled uh, so together. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, they live a long time. They live closely jammed together. Both of those um, represent good opportunities for viruses to be passed from one to the other. There is also some evidence that they downregulate their immune systems during the, if, they, if they're hibernating bats Oh, huh. during the period so, so of hibernation. Just explain what downregulating the immune system, what that means and what that involves. Um, I'm going to get it wrong if I go into any sort of molecular detail. Yeah, we don't need to go but, into but it. The basic <laughs> idea is just they stop allocating resources to the immune system right. while they're hibernating. Right. Yeah, that? and they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, much more specific molecular and cellular explanations mm -hmm. for sure. how that works. But, you know, the MHC complex of genes um, decides to, you know, produce um, immune cells that are not as aggressively, I don't know. Yeah. Sure, that's, I just needed the broad, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay, as, so there so, oh, I had one more, like, just yeah. clarifying question from earlier. Ebola, did it turn out it was bats? Well, I'm before. told, I missed this paper when it came out, but I'm told that there was a paper published in January of this year that had the gold standard of proof for mm. at least one of the quote-unquote species of Ebola virus, and I think it was the most infamous one, which is the Ebola Zaire, mm. uh, that they had found live virus in a species of uh, African, I think it was fruit bat. There are big bats and little bats. Big bats eat fruit, little bats eat insects. Uh -huh. Um, macrobats and microbats, uh, and I think it was a macrobat, Central African macrobat, I, but I, I haven't seen the paper. I need to go back okay. um, so, to look at that. Well, but until that point, people, everybody was saying, people were saying, bats, oh sure, bats are the reservoir host, but the Ebola experts that I talked to, and I did a, an article on this very subject for National Geographic in 2014, uh -huh. they were saying, no, no, we don't know. We don't know that for sure yet. That's a supposition is all. Now it's apparently, I think, more than a supposition. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in terms of the bats and why they're an issue, it seems like there's there's two other things that are are just like very um, just big picture. One is they're mammals, right? So in terms of yes. for humans, right, they're yes. going to be the viruses that can proliferate in them are probably going to be more similar to those that can proliferate in non-mammals. Yes. As right? a first take generalization, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the fact that they fly all over the place, right? So their yes. geographic range. They operate in three dimensions, mm -hmm. not just geographic range in two dimensions, but a third dimension. Mm. Um so they occupy a lot of space. That doesn't necessarily mean that they come into con 
contact with humans in three dimensions, mm-hmm. except when we shoot them out of the sky. Uh-huh. But um, if they're like interacting with, you know, livestock or animals, right? Like they can potentially get from one place to another faster than like a rat might be able to. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. They cover more, they cover more ground. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. And then in terms of the transmission from bats to us, is that like you were saying that you thought it might've been from eating something that was covered in. That shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> so. I mean, bats, um, they can shed virus in their feces in their urine. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. Probably also in saliva, okay. depending on the virus. Um, mm-hmm. So if we're eating some fruit that they've taken a bite out of, we could also yeah. theoretically. Yeah, okay. right. So. I mean, there's this other case that I described in the spillover of uh, Nipah virus in Bangladesh, uh, which began, was first recognized in Malaysia. And that involved pigs as an intermediary. It was a virus. It turned out that it was also a bat-borne virus in a particular group of giant fruit bats. Um, and on peninsular Malaysia, there are these big pig farms. There were in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of land had been cleared, and they were producing thousands and thousands of pigs. And then the pigs started getting sick and dying, coughing, you know, showing this, this infection that was passing from one to another and passing from one pig farm to another. You could hear it coming from over the hill, they, they said these pigs had a, had a one-mile cough. You could hear this, this coming. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> uh, so it was a big problem all of a sudden. And then, and then pig workers started getting sick. Mm. Um, people who worked in the abattoirs, butchers, you know, meat sellers, they started getting sick and dying. This virus was identified. That was given the name Nipah, N-I-P-A-H, named after a little village in Malaysia where it was first identified. And it was found that what had happened was that um, uh, these piggeries existed in the sun, but then the people who ran them started planting fruit trees, like mango trees and I think star fruit trees, um, shading these piggeries. And they had another another income source, another income stream, because they were harvesting the fruit. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Peninsular Malaysia is getting deforested, is losing its native forest. It's got these big fruit bats that are used to flying around in the native forest, eating the fruit. Now the native forest is disappearing, but there are these orchards, so they go to the orchards. Mm-hmm. They start eating the mangoes and the star fruit. It's the same story as and, with the predators. And yes, and there yeah. they are. And wh- where are they shitting? Well, they're <laughs> shitting like rain down onto the pigs. The pigs are eating everything that falls, fruit pulp, um, you know, yeah. mud, whatever. And I don't want to be too hard on pigs. They're eating, you know, fruit bulb and the things. That, <laughs> so the pigs get infected because the bats are raining virus down on them. Oh, wow. This was figured out. And so the, and, and then people were getting sick and people were dying of this virus. Yeah. In, in Bangladesh, there's a different story of how it transfers. Same virus, same reservoir host of a bat, um, but a different story in Bangladesh. Okay. Bangladesh does not have big pig farms because Bangladesh is Muslim. Uh-huh. Please forgive me, Bangladeshis out there, if I'm getting any of this wrong. <laughs> it's a nice country. I had a good time researching there. Uh, um, and uh, But people were showing up sick with this virus there, with Nipah virus. What's happening? Well, it's a tradition in Bangladesh to drink fresh date palm sap when the date palm sap is running. Mm. Um, and there are tappers who climb up the date palm trees and they cut slashes and they put pots to collect the sap, just the way people collect maple syrup in Vermont. Mm. And then they 
and they leave it up there all night, this little red clay pot, and they climb down uh, in the morning and they've got a clay pot full of this nice, fresh date palm sap. And they sell it like from a lemonade stand on the corner, fresh sap. Some people also um, boil it and reduce it um, and turn it into a kind of molasses because it's sugary. But if you sell it fresh, people say, wow, this is fresh date palm sap. This is great. But what's happening? It's healthy and natural. <laughs> They've got this pot up there all night, and the bats are coming to eat the date palm dates, and they're pissing and shitting in the, into the pot, into the date palm. <laughs> this is, am I allowed to use this vocabulary? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and so they're contaminating date palm sap. People are selling it fresh on the street. And uh, the people who buy it are getting Nipah virus and getting very sick and some of them dying. That's the mechanism in Bangladesh as opposed to in Malaysia where they've got all the pigs. It is pretty interesting, though, this idea of, you know, us getting these diseases. I, I actually had never known that bats were such a major yeah. disease. Uh, you know, in this book I've got a – are we on – are we rolling? We're rolling. Yeah, we're rolling. Oh. Yes. So in, uh, in this book I've got about a – 110, 120-page chapter devoted to the ecological origins of HIV, which oh. has also been published separately as a short book with a new introduction called The Chimp and the River. And it's just dizzyingly counterintuitive. It's so different from what we think we know about the origins of the AIDS pandemic. Really? So what's the, what's the real story? Um, this is reconstructed by me from the work of a number of scientists, particularly um, Beatrice Hahn, then at the University of Alabama and her group, and Michael Warby, still at um, University of Arizona down in Tucson. Uh -huh. And they figured out, using molecular evidence, that the origins of the pandemic strain of HIV, which is HIV-1 group M, were in the southeastern corner of Cameroon in Central Africa in 1908, give or take, a margin of error. Seriously? That long ago? When a single chimpanzee had blood-to-blood -blood contact with a single human being. Wow. Oh, wow. And that human being became the real patient zero. In 1908? Give or take a margin of error. Sure. So who, yeah. what's known about that? What happened then? Well, we don't know. We don't know. But somehow that, um, that virus, having found its way into a human, discovered that it could exist and replicate uh, and thrive pretty well in humans. So it was passed from human to human. And the, probably in the headwaters of the um, Ngoko River, which leads to the uh, Sangha, which leads to the main stem Congo, at a place called Brazzaville, which is right across the river from a place that was then called Leopoldville, the two biggest colonial towns then in Central Africa. Um, it might have taken 20 or 30 years to pass from human to human in the villages slowly and work its way downriver. No. And it got to Brazzaville and Leopoldville. Um, and Leopoldville became Kinshasa oh. at independence. Um, but back in um, before independence, and at roughly the time of independence, Leopoldville, for instance, had um, had a hospital for people with venereal diseases, and there was there were a lot of what they called femme libre, free femme libre French, free women who essentially were sex workers who were also um, cooks and companions and laundresses. 
mm-hmm. and might have four or five. Uh, it, it, these were essentially men's labor camps, yeah, Brazzaville so, and Leopoldville in those days. Or, Not, or wellingly named free women. Yeah, right? yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what the French called them because supposedly they were, you know, their 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 morals were loose. But, of course, their morals were no looser than their clients' morals or, or yeah. less so. Yeah. Anyway, that's what they were called, mm-hmm. yeah. And it is a, a, an ironic sort of... So, um, yeah. so they were working, so they're working at these men's labor camps where there's a lot of yeah. men, I guess. Yeah, so, so they're having contact with men. And occasionally, if they have, um, uh, if they have a, um, a manifesting venereal de- disease, you know, syphilis or gonorrhea, they would go into this clinic where the clinic would treat them with hypodermic needles that oh were non-disposable. My. Oh, wow. That they would rinse in distilled water between injections. Okay. Wow. And this was also going on in, um, that was in what then was Belgian Congo, uh, Leopoldville, Congo. So when is this about, like, what? This was, this was like from the 1920s until independence in around 1960. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, there was a fellow in French Congo, which is now um, the Republic of Congo, uh-huh. of which the capital is Brazzaville, north of the Congo River. There was a doctor there who traveled around during the 1920s and 30s vaccinating people against, um, if I recall correctly, again, this is seven years ago since you know, I've really talked about this, but vaccinating people um, against problems like malaria and uh, schistosomiasis. And he had something like six hypodermic oh syringes, precision medical instruments, probably made in you know, France or Germany. And with those six hypodermics, he vaccinated something like 5,000 people. Wow. Going from town to town. Now, this is not proven, but this is hypothesized to be part of what jump-started the transmissibility of HIV virus from one human to another. Wow. And eventually, uh, that became unnecessary because sexual contact became relatively efficient as Uh a way of, I mean, that had always been presumably part of it. Before mm-hmm. the hypodermic needles, the, you know, the people in the villages of southeastern Cameroon, um, mm-hmm. it, it passed slowly but mm-hmm. steadily through sexual contact. And then, according to the thinkings of, of some writers, including a, a, a fellow named Jacques Pepin, who's um, written a, a, an important book called The Origins of AIDS, um, there was this fellow doing all this vaccinating mm-hmm. that probably helped to jumpstart it, and then this um, this medical clinic in Leopoldville was doing and, the same sort of thing. And I mean, if that is a part of the you know history of this virus, then there's actually been selection pressures for it to be good at transmitting through hypodermic needles. Yes, oh, that's right? right. That's right. So. Yeah. Yeah, that, so it's not a surprise that it still light. does that. Yeah. 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 Of course, transmitting through a hypodermic needle is a whole lot easier than transmitting by sexual contact mm. if it's a, you know, if it's a blood-borne virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did it get to America, you might ask? Yeah. Yes. How, how did it get to America, <laughs> if, David? If you're as old as I am, you remember that when, when AIDS first loomed on the screen in 1980 and 1981, and it was mysterious and terrifying and... Um, and lethal. One of the things that people thought they knew about it was that it affected um, hemophiliacs and uh, men who had sex with men uh, and Haitians. Mm-hmm. Oh. That was part of it. 
patients. That was part of the early risk groups, the people who were turning up with the first cases, those three groups of people. So, so scientists were trying to make sense of that pattern. Mm -hmm. Men who have sex with men, hemophiliacs, Haitians. <laughs> okay, here's, here's Jacques Pepin's um, explanation for that, which I um, uh, 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 amplified in, in my book. Um, in, uh, in 1959-1960, uh, Belgian Congo was rumbling with readiness for independence, and there was a wonderful leader named Patrice Lumumba, uh, and he was assassinated, um, and um, all the Belgians left with independence in 1960. Um, the Congolese essentially said, get out of here, you Belgians, you know, go back where you came from to Belgium. And they left and they threw out all the, in getting rid of the Belgians, they got rid of the professional class. They got rid of the doctors, the lawyers, the clerks, um, the engineers, the teachers. And the Belgians had trained, no, to speak of, no Congolese into those wow. roles. Mm -hmm. So the Congo was left without a professional class. This big, sprawling country, this big population. So they were in trouble. And um, UNESCO said, uh, somebody needs to help the Congolese. Please, let's get some professionals from somewhere and get them to come in and mm -hmm. help the Congolese. Well, Haiti mm. had a lot of French-speaking, black African by ethnic origin huh. people who were professionals, doctors, lawyers, clerks, engineers, teachers, and God bless them, they, lots of them, it was like the Peace Corps, they went to Congo oh. and started filling this role. Wow. Haitians. Huh. And they lived there for five years, six years, and they had wives and girlfriends, and some of them picked up this infection that now was in Kinshasa, as the city by now was known. And then... Um, uh, What's his name? I'm forgetting the, the Congolese leader, um, not Mugabe. He was obviously in Zimbabwe. Uh, who? Oh, oh, Mobutu. Mobutu. Mobutu Sesi Seko, as he later um, called himself. Um, he became um, leader, eventually dictator, Mobutu, of the Congo. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Congo more Congo. I'm going to get rid of all these outside influences. And he changed the name of the country to Zaire. And he had a program that was called the Zairization of Congo, mm -hmm. meaning Congo for the Congolese. So now instead of getting rid of the Belgians, he got rid of the Haitians, kicked the Haitians out. Mm -hmm. They went back to Haiti and they took the virus with them. Oh. Okay. Interesting. Oh. And then, so making sense of this pattern with, Yes. And then the next thing, according to Jacques Pepin, yeah. and I think this is persuasive, um, in Haiti at that time, in the late 60s now, there were uh, plasmapheresis centers. There were places where you could go and sell the plasma from your blood for a good payoff. You know, go in there, let them draw two mm -hmm. pints of blood, and they give you $6. But they don't keep the blood. They just want the plasma. So they circulate your blood through a, a plasmapheritic separator, oh and they gosh. take out only the liquids, 
and they put the red blood cells back into oh you, gosh. back oh. into you, so that then you can come back a week later and donate some more plasma, right? Where Just does that plasma go? All this blood. It's owned by Americans, and they're shipping that plasma to Miami, where it goes to hospitals. Wow. Okay. Thousands of pints of blood are traveling from, from Haiti to the U.S. in the late 60s, early 70s, as this plasma for pay operation. Wow. They're importing it to the U.S. And what's happening? Well, you hook up um, Haitian A to this machine. You run his blood through the machine. You take out the plasma. He leaves. Haitian B comes in, C, D, E, F, G. Their blood is all going through the same machine. And it's all mixing. The plasma is all mixing. So one donator out of 100 might be HIV positive, and the yield of plasma is going to be HIV positive. Wow. And that goes to the wow. U.S. Well, and, the, and this is like a standard thing, right, where they like pool yeah. um, blood before... That's right. It's pooled. Is this what hemophiliacs end up doing? Do they yes. get blood That's donations? because they're getting, they're getting um, some of this plasma... For clotting factor. Okay. Right? Uh -huh. So it shows up among hemophiliacs. It shows up among Haitians in Florida because they're migrating up from Florida. Um, and some of them are bringing it with them. And, and then it shows up in um, men who have sex with men. Wow. Yeah. Well, and and then... so that's happening in 1980 or 81. Where did it begin? It began 1908, give or take a margin of error, in the southeastern corner of Cameroon when one guy, probably a guy, um, traps a chimpanzee in a snare for meat, comes up, kills that chimpanzee with his machete, dismembers it, takes a couple of bloody arms to the market, mm. gets blood somewhere mm. on his arms. This mm. is called the cut hunter hypothesis. Mm. And it's, I believe it's Beatrice Hahn's um, phrase. As mm. I said, she's one of the two people who led the work to untangle all this. She was the one using molecular evidence who placed the origin to the southeastern corner of Cameroon. And Michael Warby with his group placed the time to 1908, give or take mm. a margin of error. Mm. Cool. <laughs> well, I mean, it's horrible, but like a, a, the detective story of it is really awesome. You know, it is, it's, yeah. it's, it's all ecology and evolutionary biology. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, can we talk about um, this idea of heritability, like the infectious heritability idea? Can I, can I ask oh. one question yeah. before we move on? Sure, sure. Yeah. All right. You're, you're like still trying to metabolize this. So at this point, right? I know. In America, yeah. there's a lot of fear about things like getting vaccines and things like that from yeah. injections. Do we take precautions to, right? Because I assume we don't mm. we don't reuse hypodermic needles. But this this idea of this sort of plasma thing where they mix the blood, are there are there risks like that currently from? Because a lot of it sounds like a lot of this was transmitted by. You know what I mean? Hospital By and medical hospital and procedures. medical procedures, and it's a little. These lessons have been learned by the medical community and the scientific community. Okay. They haven't yet been learned by the the fearful public. Uh huh. So, so there, um, you know, fifty years ago, sixty years ago, um, there were legitimate concerns about blood plasma, and and even in some cases about vaccines. 
the scientists have been on this. They have learned the lessons, and those those products now are screened carefully. Okay, so they when they so now if you go in to get like a blood transfusion or whatever, they check. Yeah, yeah, okay. that blood has been screened, but um, there are still there there are paranoid stories about what happened even back in those days. There is a story. Uh, I was talking with Athena and Carla about this over lunch. There is um, there's a 900-page book that was published by a fellow named Edward Hooper called The River, which tells the story, his version of the story of the origins of AIDS. His version is different from the version I just told you because he wanted to believe, based on some, I think, tenuous evidence, that um, the AIDS pandemic was jump-started in Africa because someone... Um, a fellow named Hilary Kaprowski from the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia was testing an oral polio vaccine that was not made from monkey liver cells, but had been made from chimpanzee cells and that had supposedly picked up this other virus, HIV. Uh, That has been investigated and thoroughly debunked. Uh, But this, this fellow continued arguing it for a long time. Um, is it true? No, it's not true. Uh, I've, I've read the whole book. I've talked to the, you know, and talked to and read the same sources. And, um, no, we know that it wasn't true, but it, it scared people for a while. So now, so now when we go in the U.S., they, they dispose needles, right? They use them one at a time. Yeah, yeah. In, and now in Africa, when people are going, are they, have they switched to um, That's a really good question. I mean, you know, there's an Ebola outbreak still going on in Western Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, they are desperately short of basic medical materials in some of these places. You know, examination gloves, mm-hmm. syringes. Mm-hmm. Um, those, the, the cost of a syringe, I don't know what it costs in a drugstore in the U.S., not very much. If you can buy it, I don't know if you can buy mm-hmm. syringes over the counter. Um, but the cost is trivial in the U.S. But those costs are not trivial if you if you're mm-hmm. in a village in Central Africa. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's that is a serious constraint. If you're a doctor trying to save people from Ebola in uh, Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo right now, today, November 11th, you probably are desperately short of various different m- medical material, including syringes. Mm-hmm. And, and you bring up also another good point, Dave, which is just that this whole issue of, of you know diseases and like medical treatment and all of that is such a rife um, environment for conspiracy theories, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. so, and and yes, it I mean, and part of it is there's a lot of unknowns, right? And it's hard to piece together some of the stories. But then even when facts come to light, um, there's you know you might have figured out the you know, actual yeah. biological virus, but the mimetic virus, right? right. right is yes. like and it's <laughs> always, it's always, yes. And it's always easier and more exciting to be paranoid and scared than it is to exercise due diligence, do the research and find out that, yes, for this particular vaccination, your child is, you know, a thousand times more safe if she gets a flu vaccine, if she gets the basic, you know, going to school vaccines, MMR and those kinds of things. Yes, yes, vaccination is one of it's one of the foundation points of, of 
21st century medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. No, but I could see like, so as some, I mean, I've, I vaccinated my kids, but I could see hearing the story. Like, it's like, wow, there's a lot of steps of the story that involve well-meaning physicians sort of not realizing that they're yeah. helping to spread an yeah. epidemic, you know? Yeah. And so I could definitely see how mm -hmm. hearing the story, it's like, it's a little, it's scary. I could see how people are, mm -hmm. are scared about the idea. I'm not yeah. saying. Yeah. yeah. People in Eastern Congo are, are you know, are scared and, and believe lots of various things about Ebola. Oh, and they yeah. don't, they don't want, their loved ones to go into the Ebola treatment centers because 60% of the people who go in there come out feet first. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. So let's keep grandma at home instead when she starts suffering from Ebola. Yeah. That doesn't work out so well either. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, that maybe there's this tendency to go into like a risk averse mode when you feel threatened too. Right. And then maybe you're like overestimating the, the threat of various things. I'm, I'm just speculating sure, yeah, here, but I think so, there might be some psychological issues, right? Yeah. That, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. They found that even, um, was it Doctors Without Borders did this study? I'm, I can't remember who did this study, but in the early Ebola treatment centers, um, they would bring people in to isolate them, get them away, away from the communities so that you know, they wouldn't continue to transmit the disease. And then they would try to treat Ebola. There was no anti-Ebola drug at that point, so they treated them with just basic life support. Um, you know, fluids and, and antibiotics and things like that to protect them against secondary infections and then hope that the people could come through. But when they would go into the Ebola treatment center, they would go in behind these big plastic fences, opaque plastic fences, and then their loved ones wouldn't see them. They'd go in there and then they might come out alive and they might come out dead. They discovered that if you just made those fences out of mesh, instead of out of solid plastic so that people could see uh -huh. what's going on in there, their doctors yeah. and nurses walking around trying to take care of people, that that decreased the paranoia to no That's considerable That's literally degree. the transparency. Yes, literally <laughs> transparency helped. That is a really cool, literal yeah. metaphor. It's not even a metaphor. It's a thing. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, I love that. That is interesting. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. All right. So should we, I, I mean, I, so I want to talk about this like heritability thing, right? Because infective heredity. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Infective heredity. heredity. That's the, the phrase, phrase that comes use. from the great Josh Letterberg or the, the great Josh Letterberg and the great Esther Letterberg. Yeah. So when do infections go from being something that just jump, um, you know, uh, horizontally from organism to organism and actually like become part of who we are? Yeah, so this is this involves the phenomenon that's called horizontal gene transfer, which most people have never heard of, which I had never heard of until 2013 when I started reading about it. And that led me to write this book, The Tangled Tree, which is about the fact that the tree of life is a picture of evolutionary history, is not a tree. It's a tangled tree, meaning that the branches don't all just diverge, 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 leading up to little twigs and leaves. But some of the branches on the tree of life flow into other branches. They flow sideways, horizontally. Mm -hmm. No real tree does that. Um, that's horizontal gene transfer. Um, this phenomenon discovered belatedly that um, when people started sequencing genomes, that genes sometimes move sideways from one species into another, even from one kingdom of life into another. And how on earth another. do they do that? How do they do that? <laughs> well, uh, it was first discovered in bacteria um, because bacteria um, smooch. 
um, bacteria, you know, it's called, the metaphor is bacterial sex. There's a phenomenon called conjugation. I, t- I know I'm telling you things that you know, but it's a phenomenon called mm-hmm. conjugation, which is two bacteria um, connect themselves by way of a tube, and then genes, usually in the form of little circular genes, plasmids they call them, can pass from one bacterium into another, one particle into another, trading genes sideways, horizontal gene transfer. That's called conjugation. Um, it's not really bacterial sex because it has nothing to do with reproduction. It's mm-hmm. just transfer of genes. It's you know, like they're sending each other little text messages yeah. or something. And yeah. what is the, why, did the, why does that happen? Uh, it happens It happens because it can, and it happens because it's reinforced by natural selection. In some cases, those genes that are moving sideways carry um, capacities that are highly useful for a new environment into which the bacteria may have just moved or found itself. Okay. So like a whole adaptation yeah. can just be like... Yeah. Zip, so bacterial over. genomes bacterial genomes are very economical and concise and small. They don't carry around everything they need, bacteria. But they have the ability to acquire tools on the fly. You know? Um, like a, one bicycle racer throws a water bottle to another bicycle racer. Okay. That's so, conjugation. Okay. You know? Um except it's not throwing a water bottle, it's throwing a little plasmid that has genes on it. What might those genes do? One of the things they might do is confer resistance to penicillin. Suddenly, bacteria number two acquires this gene from bacteria number one, so now bacterium number two is resistant to penicillin because she's got a copy of this gene. It's It's like the genetic equivalent of like, Watching a YouTube tutorial, right? Where it's like they're like, "This is how you." It's can. exactly what it is. Yeah. Dave. I meant to say that. <laughs> so, right. um, um, so that's yeah. one form of infective heredity. But now we learn that, for instance, viruses um, can do sort of a drag well, and drop well, thing. Just this thing about the the um, that bacteria can share these these resistance genes means that if you take antibiotics, um, then like. If there's just some bacteria in your gut that have resistance to those antibiotics, they can then share the antibiotic resistance genes with other bacteria from other species in your gut. Yes, so, from species to species. Yeah. Um, an E. coli can share a gene across to a salmonella, and the salmonella can share it to a staphylococcus by this form of horizontal gene transfer. Wow. And that's why antibiotic-resistant bacteria are such a global problem so quickly. Mm-hmm. Not because of incremental point mutation that they're independently developing a resistance to antibiotics, but that once resistant, a resistant gene is developed in bacterial species A, quote-unquote species, that can be passed instantaneously into a diff- completely different kind of bacteria through horizontal gene transfer through wow. this process. And therefore, um, antibiotic resistance has spread around the world like wildfire. That's, that's wild. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Ah, but viruses can pick up a piece of gene. Viruses, you know, get into a cell. They get into the nucleus, uh, at least in some cases. They can pick up a piece of DNA from the nucleus of organism A, and then the virus replicates with that new piece of uh, DNA virus replicates, spills out of that cell, might affect, infect another cell, or it might leave that organism and infect another organism, carrying that bit of DNA with it, delivering that bit of DNA into the genome of the other organism. That's called transduction. Viruses carrying bits of DNA 
So and those can get into the germline? And that can get into the germline if they infect. Um, what do you mean by germline? Germline yeah, cells. Yeah, so the egg cells or sperm cells. Yeah, so, so the, like, the germline is the permanent continuous um, chain of, of genome inheritance. So essentially, like, if I had this happen to me, then my... Your not kids. the kids that I have now, but if I had future kids, uh, future kids then they might have they should get this. Yes. Okay. So now let's talk about endogenous retroviruses. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Speaking of the germline, yeah. Um, a retrovirus is a virus that moves backwards from what you think of viruses infecting cells and replicating themselves and exploding the cell, and then there are more virus particles. A retrovirus inserts itself into the into the nucleus of the cell that it infects, and it inserts its DNA program into the genome of that cell. Okay. And then two things can happen. It can replicate itself in that cell and explode, and lots of more retrovirus particles come out. Or it can just abide there while that cell lives its life, replicates itself. When it replicates itself, it replicates the, the uh -huh. retroviral genome. That gets passed along, and it just might pass, pass along for a while, and then eventually bust out and express itself as viral particles, okay? That's what happens with HIV, which is a retrovirus. It infects immune cells in just that way. In some of them, it, it explodes and lots of more HIV particles come out, and in others, it just abides there, and as the immune cell replicates itself, it replicates the viral DNA. Wow. That's with immune cells. But if it infects, if a retrovirus infects the germline, which is the ovaries, testes, the stem cells that create eggs and sperm and the eggs and sperm, but particularly the stem cells that create eggs and sperm. Mm. If it infects those, then it gets passed down to the offspring of that organism, to so the daughters and sons. It becomes your genome, it part of your genome. part of the genome. No, does, is, that, is that how HIV is passed from parents to kids or is it no, just through blood? No, that's not. Okay. HIV doesn't do that. Oh. But some retroviruses do that. They infect the germline. They infect um, ovaries and testes and their stem cells. 8% of the human genome is viral DNA from retroviruses that have infected our germline. 8% really? of the human genome is viral DNA. It doesn't come down to us through the endless lineage of an animals leading to mammals, leading to primates, leading to humans. It has come in sideways over a period of time, maybe early in the mammal um, history, um, and it infected the germline and become part of the germline. Viral DNA, 8% of all of us, including one stretch of DNA that produces, that, that is now known as a gene called Syncytin-2, S-Y-N-C-Y-T-I-N. And that gene, Syncytin-2, um, creates a, um, a membrane between the placenta and the fetus that's completely necessary for successful human pregnancy. Really? So yeah. without that virus, we couldn't... Correct. We couldn't have kids. Well, I mean, Correct. you guys couldn't, you know, have a successful placenta situation in your bodies either, but I could. But, so. but we still have this viral <laughs> Yeah. DNA, we still have right? it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. We yeah. have it too. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask how it affects us. So, so sometimes it's actually beneficial. Yes, yes. Um, now, how did... How did mammals ever come into being if they didn't have this membrane between the placenta and the fetus? Somewhere early in the, um, in the evolution of pre-mammals, some individual became infected with a version of this retrovirus. It wasn't sensitin 2. It was an earlier version. 
and created a primitive possibility of a membrane that would allow internal pregnancy. Before that, it's reptiles and birds. You know, they lay eggs on the ground. But there are disadvantages of laying your eggs on the ground. If a predator comes and you run away, you can't take your young with you. There are eggs on the ground. If you have an internal pregnancy, you have a fetus inside you, the predator comes, you run away, the fetus goes with you. Sure. There's an advantage there. Yeah. But so I learned from David Haig, though, and I, I used to think also that mammals were like where, you know, uh, internal gestation was invented, but apparently it's like all over the tree of life that there's internal gestation, not just mammals. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. but there's probably some really interesting story there with like what this virus enabled us to do in yes. terms of nutrient transfer or mediating the conflict between the yeah. mother and the fetus. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, really, really fundamental kinds of abilities that we almost kind of take for granted in our physiology are, are there because of these, this viral DNA that's yeah. in yeah. our bodies. So. Can I ask how yeah. they know that it's 8%? Like how, Sequencing the human genome and matching it against um, retroviruses and saying, where did this piece come from? Well, look, here's here's a version of it over here. Okay. So matching, mm -hmm. huh. um, you know, molecular phylogenetics. Okay. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So, so in terms of this, like, you know, the way that the tree of life is sort of, you know, um, entangled with itself. I mean, even just the, this idea of, um, the origins of the cells that make us as mm -hmm. eukaryotes, right? That There's a, a sort of tangled tree story of that as well, right? Oh, you mean endosymbiosis? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so uh, as Athena said, you know, we are eukaryotes. We belong to one of the three major kingdoms of life. Um, and our particular kingdom of life has complex cells that have a cell nucleus and have internal organelles. Um, that are like the internal organs in our body, you know, liver, heart, you know, lungs. So is that what, what does eukaryote mean? It means that we have... Uh, it means that we, we have complex cells with a, a, a nucleus, cell nucleus, holding our DNA in a nice little internal sure. package. But then we also have these internal organelles. One of them is called mitochondria, uh -huh. and it's, it's sprinkled like pepper, you know, like pepper sure. flakes through our cell. I remember, I remember that. Yeah, Science and, and those... So. Um, those little organelles package energy, uh -huh. package ATP molecules that we can use, help us engage in more complex processes than a bacterium can. Um, where do the and, and plants have? They have mitochondria. They also have chloroplasts, which help them create. Let's see, how does it work? They take sunlight and they create sugars. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what you yeah. do in a chloroplast. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So it's also a form of, you know, harvesting and using, harvesting energy and making it available to the cell. Plants have chloroplasts. Plants and animals have mitochondria. Where do those come from? Theorists in the late 19th century started suggesting that those were captured bacteria that two billion years ago or sometime that the, the first mitochondrion was actually a bacterial particle that another cell swallowed or perhaps became infected by and then either never digested or never recovered from, that little visitor came to stay. That little visitor replicated itself. The cell replicated, the visitor replicated, the cell visitor, and they 
they established a symbiotic relationship, one of them inside the other, and the bacterial particle eventually turned into mitochondria. Uh-huh. Mitochondria have genomes. That's why they talk about mitochondrial Eve. It's because mitochondria has a genome that's different from your cellular genome. What is that genome similar to? It's similar to the genome in an alpha proteobacterium. Because two billion years ago, one cell captured one alpha proteobacterium (laughs) and it came to stay. Likewise, with chloroplasts in plants, they sequence chloroplasts have genomes. What does the genome look like? It looks like a cyanobacterial genome. Um, And that's because sometime two billion years ago, um, this occurred more than one time. It occurred apparently several times. A cell swallowed a cyanobacterial particle and it came to stay and it established a symbiotic relationship and it evolved into chloroplasts. And then whenever that cell reproduces itself, it sort of reproduces yes. both. Yeah, because the organelles are, are reproducing themselves continually within the cells. And then when a cell reproduces, um, it, you know, it, the share of its protoplasm goes both ways. And do I remember correctly that a bunch of the genes that were sort of mitochondrial genes are now in the nucleus of our eukaryotic cells? Yes. So there's sort of been like a bit of a reshuffling yes. of the controls, yes. so to yes. speak? Yes, some, some of the, the, the mitochondrial um, predecessors within us, the ancestors of mitochondria, gradually downloaded some of their genes to the nuclear genome. Uh-huh. So that's where they are now. And the genome of a mitochondria, mi- mitochondrion, a single mitochondrial particle, is smaller and simpler than the genome of an alpha proteobacterium, as we can see it today. Where are those missing genes? They're in our own genome in the nucleus. Interesting. So it's almost like we can't really distinguish the individuals anymore, right? There's, yeah. That's one of the things I say at the end of my book, The Tangled Tree, that all of this work in molecular phylogenetics, including work by Lynn Margulis, who we're describing her idea of endosymbiosis, um, uh, this and all this um, recognition of horizontal gene transfer, it tells us a couple of things. It tells us that three things that we considered sacred categorical truths are not categorical truths. The fact that um, a species is a species and it doesn't move genes sideways across species boundaries. Yeah, and no, we know that's not, not true. That's not a categorical. <laughs> it's, it, it's true-ish, but it's not categorically true. Um, an individual is one thing. No, we know that we are chimeras and every other kind of complex creature is a chimera. So an individual is true-ish, but it's not a categorical truth. Mm-hmm. And we used to think that we know knew that the history of life on Earth was shaped like a tree. Mm-hmm. Wrong. Mm-hmm. True-ish, but not categorically true, because, yes, there is a strong tree-like signal in the history of life, but that tree is a tangled tree, mm-hmm. because some of the limbs don't just diverge, they converge. They mm-hmm. flow into one another. Wow. So we're made of lots of creatures, actually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Kind of come together, we're like Frankensteins, yeah. kind of made from the parts of lots of things. Yeah, and, yeah. and that doesn't even begin to get into the uh, microbiome. Yeah, you know, 
mm-hmm. because those those critters are in us thousands of different species of bacteria and and other you know single cell microbes um, but they're not part of our genome yeah now do they get passed from parent to child um, to, to some extent but yeah. to some extent the, yeah and um, there's, there's a whole ecosystem of of microbes that could pass yeah. from from mother to child. Yeah, but there's a lot of influence of your environment on yeah. your microbes yeah. too. Right, so, right. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence. Correct me, Athena, uh-huh. if I'm wrong about this, but there's a lot of evidence showing that um, if your kids get raised in an environment that's too sterile, um, that will be disadvantageous to them in the long run. That that might lead them to be asthmatic or have other um, symptomatic, you know conditions and other problems if they if they don't acquire a rich enough microbiota early enough um, it can be problematic so so, so when you let your kids share needles folks. So, hey, don't, <laughs> no, don't let your kids no, show needles but, but when your one-year-old when your one-year-old drops her um what do they call it uh, oh the lollipop or, uh, or no. The, no the pacifier pacifier when you uh-huh. when your one-year-old drops her pacifier in the airport Pick it up and stick it back in her mouth. <laughs> that, that is not official medical advice. No, no that's true. Thank you, Athena. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> so, so let's let's like big picture a little here. So, we, I mean, we talked about like all of these different ways that we are made of other forms of life, and these intersections between different you know, forms of life in terms of disease. And I mean, there's so many ways that we're influenced by things that are not us. And our, our like the whole idea of the, like this podcast is, you know, what, like, how are we influenced by things that are not us? What are, you know, those things? And then are those a, a problem for, for our autonomy, for how we think of ourselves, for um, how we want to be going forward in the future? So, so I'll always kind of, come to this question at the end of, you know, if we sort of take the things that we've been talking about today, and I don't know, I think maybe the zoonotic diseases is maybe the most zombie apocalyptic kind of topic. Uh, so, so, you know, if we take like what we know about how, you know, zoonotic diseases can be transmitted, and if we, you know, we, we turn it up a little bit, like say, okay, maybe it's a little easier for, um, you know, diseases to transmit between species, or maybe humans are a little more vulnerable. <laughs> like, you know, what is the possible zombie apocalypse that results? And, you know, what, what would your, what's your zombie apocalypse scenario for us, given what you know about zoonotic diseases? I'm not, um, as you know, I'm not uh, very culturally literate on the, the zombie well, phenomenon. you can just make up whatever kind of zombie apocalypse well, you, you want. You can use your, your fiction hat now. What <laughs> so. I like to think about is um, uh, the whole concept. Of, we mentioned these three categoricals that are now challenged. I mean, an, yeah. another way of saying that is self. And this is, you know, this is very relevant in your, your other hat, your professional field, when you're not being the zombie queen um, and you're working <laughs> That's on part can- of my profession and cancer. Uh, and that is the notion of self versus non-self. Yeah. Uh, the integrity, our, 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 our wondrous, you know, um, innate and adaptive immune systems that are patrolling, you know, mm-hmm. to try and sort self 
from non-self. And then when it comes to cancer, it's a matter of sorting self from self Mm -hmm. uh, and drawing the line where self becomes Mm non-self. The whole thing um, of what does it mean to say this is myself? When I say this is myself, I realize that, that, you know, to use Richard Dawkins' phrase, I'm, you know, I'm a vehicle for genes mm-hmm. moving through t- space, moving through time, yeah. moving through, you know, if I had children, moving through generations. Mm-hmm. I don't have children. But, um, you do have you know, dogs, though, right? I so they can transmit dogs. at least your microbiome. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm quite aware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a person, a person who lives with three big dogs, I'm sure, has a different microbiome than a, a person who doesn't. Yep. Um, my wife and I live with three big dogs, a cat, and a ball python. And <laughs> wow, so that's awesome. There's a rich mix of possibilities there. Yeah, well, there was a study that showed that um, people who live in the same house with dogs have more similar microbiomes to each other, the humans do, than people who live in households without dogs. Really? Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah. also, you know, they have similar microbiomes to yeah. their dogs, yeah. but it actually yeah. affects the humans. Anyway, sorry, yeah. I, I interrupted your... Yeah, so <laughs> zombie apocalypse, I don't know. I mean, I'm helping these... Um, these. Uh, I don't have uh, any cyanobacteria in me as far as I know, but I certainly have the, the descendants of alpha, alpha proteobacteria in all my mitochondria. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got all these other microbiomes, mm-hmm. uh, microbiomic, you know, critters mm-hmm. living in me. I've got follicle mites in my eyebrows. Yeah. I've got all kinds of creatures living on my tongue, mm-hmm. um, all over my skin. So I'm this, um, you know, and, and you're not like unique. All of us do just to yes. say, yes. <laughs> yes. you're yes. not like coming in here, crawling. Each of us, each of us is a, is a, is a gaily, is a paisley painted, uh, school bus. Um, rolling down the road filled with creatures of all sorts, carrying them from one phase of their evolutionary mm-hmm. history into another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're, we have our, our individual sense of ourselves, but it's also to remember, it's good, good to remember uh, how connected we are, how we're, we're just this sort of Paisley school bus for all kinds of creatures um, moving along and, you know, we live, um, you know, three score and 10 years or whatever. And then, um, it goes back into the ground mm-hmm. or it goes into the, um, the, uh, crematorium, mm-hmm. um, and our nutrients come out. And in some cases, if we go into the ground, some of the cells in us, um, continue surviving mm-hmm. and replicating and going onward. Mm-hmm. So for you, the zombie apocalypse is all of us and our microbes and our zoonotic diseases are on a school bus singing Kumbaya. <laughs> uh, I think of it as a, I think of it as a Ken Kesey sort of school bus sure. filled with merry pranksters, you know, okay. taking LSD and and, um, and and playing the doors loud. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's my generation. <laughs> So, so are you worried about zoonotic diseases as someone who has studied them extremely extensively? Yes, I'm worried about the number mm-hmm. of people they're killing in eastern Congo right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm worried about um, uh, the number of um, kids in sub-Saharan Africa who are dying of malaria 
each year. And malaria, as I explain in my book, is in the long scope of things is a zoonotic disease because everything comes from somewhere. And we're a relatively young species, so all of our infectious diseases have, have come from earlier, mm -hmm. you know, animal forms that, that mm -hmm. carried them. Um, am I worried that Ebola is going to come to the U.S. And, and kill off a lot of us? No. And during the 2014 Ebola epidemic mm -hmm. in West Africa, I was asked that question on TV more than a few times because mm -hmm. I had written about this stuff. I said something to, um, to um, Anderson Cooper one night on his show that um, Rush Limbaugh picked up the next day. Oh, my. Um, Which was? Uh, Anderson Cooper asked me, um, well, so uh, people have, some people have come back from Liberia in West Africa, having worked there as volunteer medical people. Um, they might be infected with Ebola. One man, a Liberian, has come into the U.S. and then came down with Ebola and died. Um, should we close our borders to Liberia? And this is live on Andy Anderson wow. Cooper's show, and I'm sitting in a TV studio in a basement in Bozeman, Montana, <laughs> staring at a, at a camera. Wow. Um, and I think, first of all, that's not a great question for me. I shouldn't be answering that question. I'm just yeah. here to talk about the science side. Yeah. And the second thing I said was, well, Liberia is a country that exists because of human slavery, because of American slavery in the 1840s and 50s. So how dare we turn our back on Liberia? Mm. And Anderson Cooper said, okay, fine, and went mm. on to you know, the next panelist. Yeah. Um, and I went home, and then 11 o'clock the next morning, a friend of mine called me. I was sitting in my quiet office, and yeah. he said, dude, do you know <laughs> that Rush Limbaugh is lighting up his base at your expense at this moment? <laughs> because there's some wacko liberal in Bozeman, Montana, who said that Americans deserve to get Ebola because of slavery. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so for 24 hours or so, I was wow. Rush Limbaugh's favorite liberal moron. Wow. Uh, I was thinking about getting a pin made up um, that I could wear proudly that says, yeah. Rush Limbaugh called me a wacko. <laughs> <laughs> and then that passed, uh -huh. went away. Uh -huh. So, so why do you think we don't really have to worry in the U.S. about outbreaks? Well, like because Ebola is not the one that's going to get us. Ebola um, is transmitted only, as far as we know, on bodily fluids. Ebola um, is a terrible disease if you're an impoverished um, or struggling person in an African village with insufficient medical material. Mm -hmm. um, to deal with it so it can be isolated and stopped. Um, it's a terrible disease for people in those circumstances. The ones that are more likely to sweep through um, developed countries and big cities in the U.S. or around the world are, are other diseases that are transmitted um, uh, through the respiratory route, airborne viruses, single-stranded RNA viruses um, that um, mutate quickly and can travel on a sneeze. And that's not Ebola. That's uh, that's flu. Mm -hmm. That's SARS. Mm. That's MERS. That's others that we haven't heard about yet. Um, but and this is not me saying this. This is the experts that I talk to in the 
in the course of researching spillover, mm -hmm. and I asked them, what what does the next big one look like to you? The one that could spread across now that we're all globalized, and you know, and uh, Hong Kong, if a, a bird market in Hong Kong is only 14 hours uh, away from Toronto or New York, and the experts told me single-stranded RNA viruses. That's a certain mm -hmm. several families of viruses. Uh, that have high mutation rates, um, replicate quickly, mutate quickly, and uh, in many cases can be passed by the respiratory route mm. on a sneeze, on a cough, and also in some cases um, result in shedding of lots of the virus before people are lying down sick, when they're still mm. walking around going to work sick. They're feeling mm. not very good. They're sneezing. They're coughing. But they say, oh, I can go to work. I'm going to get on the subway. I'll go to work. That's the profile of the viruses that have the capacity to kill millions of people. Mm. So it's uh, the walking dead, like when people can be up and so walking it's around. The, they're yeah. perfect. Athena, nice job <laughs> bringing it all back around to the walking dead. It's the, it's the zombie apocalypse by way of single-stranded RNA viruses. Yeah. So, so what can we do to uh, avoid this? Uh, you know, is there anything we can do to um, protect ourselves tell and your, others? Tell your congressman that you disapprove of cuts in the budget of the CDC. Okay. That's a concrete thing. All right. Because those people are really knowledgeable, really expert, really courageous. Um, the people from the CDC and other organizations like that in other countries who go out and who deal with these um, potential pandemics mm -hmm. when they're still just outbreaks. Yeah, so the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control. Centers for Disease Center. Control and Prevention, yeah. And yeah. they're funded by our tax money, right, to right. help protect us from right. these kinds of issues. Yes, cool. yes. Yeah. yeah. Anything else that, that you can do? I guess stay home if you're feeling stay sick. Stay home if you're feeling sick. Vaccinate your kids. Mm -hmm. Yes, vaccinate your kids mm -hmm. for their own safety and for the safety of the, of the kids that they go to school with. Mm -hmm. You, I don't think you have the right to send your kids to school unvaccinated if they might be carrying um, a virus that is going, because of that, is going to be passed to other kids who mm -hmm. might also be unvaccinated, who maybe didn't have the opportunity to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I know that that's, you know, the herd immunity argument maybe is not the most immediately practical and appealing to people who are concerned with their own kids. Um, so do it for your own kids, but think about other kids too. Mm -hmm. So any other, uh, any other ways that we can protect ourselves or, or others? You too, Dave, do you have any thoughts? I think that's a, that's a pretty good list. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So. What, what do you think of those masks I see people wearing around in the, in the airport and stuff like that? Is that when I first saw those, I saw some people, like when I left southern China, having yeah. um, spent time there crawling around in caves, helping a biologist look for the SARS virus yeah. in bats, um, and we weren't wearing protective gear. Mm. I asked him, why are we not wearing protective yeah. gear? There's an answer to that in my book. But then I got on the plane to fly, <laughs> the from, book. <laughs> to fly from southern China back to Hong Kong. Uh -huh. And I saw a couple, I think they were Japanese tourists, and they were wearing masks. And I thought, that's not going to save you. These little, mm. you know, little entry-level yeah. um, um, sort of gauze masks. But 
um, I've, I've seen more of those over in people in airports over time, and I've come to suspect that mostly what they're doing is um, trying to protect other people from their own germs. If they've mm-hmm. got a cold, then maybe, and I think maybe there's, there's, there's an ethic in, in particularly in Japan that says, if you've got a cold, don't get on an airplane without wearing a ma- mask. Uh-huh. It's your responsibility to other people. So now when I, I see those things, I say, thank you for being so considerate. That's a good point, right? So, and they might do a better job of protecting, yeah. right? Because they're going to yeah. block a sneeze yeah. if it from aerosolizing all over the place. Right, right. Yeah. And if, you know, if if the virus is already out there, aerosol aerosolized in the plane, then wearing one of those things is probably not going to protect you because it can probably also get in through your eyes. I don't mm. know. But if you're the one who's doing the sneezing, mm-hmm. you might be able to protect other people by wearing that mask. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I guess... You know, that maybe there's a sort of thread running through all of this that, you know, we can think about, you know, how do we protect ourselves? But then also if we're all thinking about how do we protect others, if we might be infectious, then, you know, ultimately we'll all be better off. That's right. That's part of this is that, yeah, if you want to protect yourself and your kids, you need to worry about everybody else being protected, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because this stuff goes everywhere. Yeah. Well... Thank you so much for sharing your brains with us for this episode of Zombified. You're welcome. This is yeah. fun. You guys you guys rock. You have fun here. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun talking yeah, with you. Yeah, this was really interesting. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you Zombified is a production of ASU and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and the ASU President's Office, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, and to all the brains that help make this podcast, including Tal Ram, who does our great sound, Neil Smith, who makes our amazing illustrations, and Lemmy, the creator of the song Psychological. Thank you also to our entire Z team of ASU undergraduates and graduate students who work tirelessly to transcribe the transcripts for the episodes and um, help with all sorts of other aspects of the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are Zombified Pod and Zombified Podcast on Facebook. 
Our website is zombified.org. You can also support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. We are all educational. We have no ads and just $1 a month on Patreon will help us make Zombified happen. You can also buy our merchandise. We have awesome stickers and t-shirts available on our website. At the end of every episode, I share a bit of my brains, and today I just want to offer a little tidbit, which is that I think that what David Quammen talks about in this episode in terms of how the tree of life is so tangled and we are made of all of these different creatures that are kind of sewn together in this amazing biological tapestry that I just love that. I love thinking about who we are as organisms um, in this, you know, how we kind of can be decomposed into all of these different parts, whether it is the bacterial origins of our mitochondria or thinking about how we are literally made of lots of cells that are not genetically from our germline. If you think of the role of the microbiome in all of us humans, you know, there's about half of our cells are microbial and a lot more of our genes are microbial than from our germline. So I think that we ourselves, each of us is a sort of tangled evolutionary tree and I find that, I guess, a little bit more comforting than terrifying. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.